You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Aloha, this is Doug Nordman. Hi, this is Steve Chen coming to you from California. This is Jen Smith. This is Cameron Huddleston, and you're listening to the What's Up Next podcast. It's the uncommon that scares us. In personal finance, we talk about black swan events, unforeseen market aberrations, world wars, environmental cataclysms. We talk about them theoretically because that's exactly what they are. They could happen on a chance, on a whim but they sure aren't likely. So our financial planning surrounding these black swan events is equally amorphous. Theoretical solutions to theoretical problems. None of us quite believes that any of this is actually going to happen. Yet, below the surface, a more insidious risk mushrooms. There are several no less devastating but much more likely financial risks we face. Yet, on the surface, we generally ignore them. A health scare, a divorce, or possibly even our parents. And speaking of financial risks, many of you What's Up Nexters are freelancers, small business people, and consultants. And what's even harder than getting the big job or account? It's getting paid for it once the work is done. That's why we are giving a big thanks to Joust for supporting What's Up Next. Joust is the nation's only all-inclusive banking platform for the self-employed. Pay Armor. Joust's invoice payment guarantee product supports the 71% of the gig economy workforce that experiences non-payment. You can sign up for Joust for free at try.joust.com backslash W-U-N and enter the promo code W-U-N and get $100 in credits. That's try.joust.com slash W-U-N. So, Paul Thompson, what's up next? Well, hey, Doc, we're recording this around the holiday time, and it is interesting that it reminds us about our family. And so we thought it would be an interesting question to ask, will your parents complicate your financial future? So we have four guests here that will give us some their insight, and we'll give each of them an introduction. Doug, do you mind going first, please? I uh, write about military personal finance, but I also spent a little over six years uh, taking care of my father's finances while he was uh, grappling with Alzheimer's. Uh, He passed away just a little over two years ago, and I can talk about what it was like from 2011 through 2017, and also settling a parent's estate as their conservator. Hey, I'm Jen Smith, co-host of the Frugal Friends podcast. I went through a surprise foreclosure, surprise for me, but not for my mom, realizing all of her financial woes in a time of emergency. This is Steve Chen. I'm the founder of NewRetirement.com, and we provide do-it-yourself retirement planning tools. I'm also a student of financial independence. And I actually started this company because helping my mom in her early 60s kind of figure out her own financial situation and get on firmer financial footing. I'm Cameron Huddleston. I am a financial journalist and author of Mom and Dad, We Need to Talk, How to Have Essential Conversations with Your Parents About Their Finances. My mother has Alzheimer's disease and I have been a caregiver and have managed her finances for, wow, 11 years now. So Jen, I'd like to start with you. In preparing for this recording, I was scanning across your blog and I came across a post, 10 Frugal Things I Learned from My Parents. And my excitement, however, faded as I realized that this was a guest post and not (laughs) written by you. Tell me, was there not much talking about finance growing up in your family? 
Yeah, no, I could not have written that post at all because there was no money talk uh, growing up. My parents were super private about money. My dad passed away in 2006. And after he died, my mom continued to be really private. And I found out in 2017 that 2006, she refinanced her mortgage at that time and was lost in some kind of shuffle. She went about nine years without paying her mortgage and told me after nine years that she was being foreclosed on. She kept all of that a secret for almost a decade. Stephen, it sounds like in Jen's family, they didn't talk about money growing up. So it wasn't a big surprise that later on, as Jen grew up, her mom didn't talk to her about her financial problems then either. Did you talk about money a lot as a kid in your family household? You know, not really. I grew up in uh, the Northeast in Rochester, New York. And I think in New England, we don't really talk about money specifically, like people don't talk about salaries and stuff like that. You know, with our family, what happened was my mom was kind of headed into retirement. She ran into some issues with a small business she ran. And, you know, she was college educated, white collar worker, so pretty smart, but still kind of hit financial turbulence like a lot of folks. And it started using credit cards. Anyway, there there came a point where it was like a financial crisis. And um, at that point, yeah, we, we had a kind of a big discussion about, hey, how can we do better? And and then we started diving into her situation. And what, what happened there was we looked around for people to help her and couldn't really find anyone that, you know, was an expert at kind of like making this transition to retirement and was interested in it. So my brother and I, we both have background in financial services and so forth. And so we just ended up doing on spreadsheets. And after we did that, we looked around and said, oh, maybe there's an opportunity to like build software to do this. And that's how we got here. And Doug, you describe your father writing you an email to you and your brother saying, hey, we can't communicate by email anymore because I'm having trouble navigating this. How involved were you with your dad's life at that point in time? Uh, Were you particularly close? Did you know about his affairs and what was going on at home and with his finances? Yeah, that was a a shot out of the blue. And we weren't especially close. We would email back and forth, but it was more conversations about life and family than it really was about uh, financial planning or estate planning or any of that. When uh, he emailed us that his slipping memory made it hard to use the computer, that earned him a visit right away from my brother and me. So if you're lonely, try that out on your adult children and it'll gather the family around your house. But that's when we first realized he was grappling with dementia. And that was the first time I also had to try to ask, do you want help? What can I do for you? How can I help make this better? And the answers at that point, when you're struggling with dementia, the easiest thing for you to say is no. And and that's the answer I got. So there was no power of attorney. I had absolutely no clue what his finances were. All I had was, uh, no, I'm good. And he managed to live another 18 months almost independently. It was probably pretty scary. I'm glad I never found out all the details before we had to step in and get appointed as his conservator and guardian. And that was the biggest issue was that he had made no plan for his disability. He, of course, had a will. He had a medical directive, but he had never thought about the disability aspect. Cameron, I'm going to ask you the million dollar question here. When we hear Jen and Steve's story, you know, they didn't talk to their family much about finances as kids growing up. And then As we hear Doug talk about his interactions with his dad, he didn't know the day-to-day of what was going on when all this happened. If we don't talk about money in our families as kids, and if we're not sharing those type of details in our lives, how do we start talking to them as adults about money? How do we start those kind of conversations? Well, I know it sounds like an incredibly awkward conversation to have, especially if you grew up in a family where your parents told you, you don't talk about money. It's not polite, which is what my father always told me growing up. You don't ever talk about money. You don't ask people how much they make. You don't ask how much things cost. So if you've grown up in that sort of family environment, I'm sure the idea of talking to your parents about their finances seems incredibly awkward, incredibly difficult. But I want people to realize that, first of all, as awkward as the conversation might seem, the consequences of not having it can be a lot worse. But oftentimes, these conversations aren't nearly as bad as you think they might be. We build it up in our head to be something absolutely terrible. If, if I had this conversation, my parents are going to think I'm being nosy, I'm being greedy, they're going to get mad at me. But if you approach it carefully, out of love, out of respect and letting them know that you want to talk to them because you're looking out for their best interest. 
most likely they're not going to blow up at you. I mean, you're not a child anymore. They might still think of you as a child, but they're certainly not going to ground you and send you to your room. <laughs> That's not going to happen. Most parents will likely open up. There will, cer- there will certainly be some who will be reluctant and it might take several attempts to get the conversation. And then there will be the few who refuse to talk, no matter how many times you try. But I, I've talked to a lot of people from my book, just in passing over the years, most people do find that they can have this conversation. Many more people are able to have the conversation than those who are not. And so, first of all, you have to stop being afraid to have the conversation. And then when you decide that you're ready to go forward with it, which should be today, don't wait until that emergency happens because then it's too late. Lots of different ways you can start the conversation so it's more natural. It's not so awkward. Jen, she mentioned Cameron did this idea of waiting till it was an emergency. And it seems to me that these conversations are the end point of a series of things happening, which caused the emergency. For your mom, was it the death of your father in 2006? Was it like the beginning of the unraveling of her finances? Yeah, that was it. So when my dad died in 2006, they went from a two-income household to a one-income. And she had never dealt really with the finances. They did it together, but they didn't do a lot financially. So no investment accounts, no credit cards. It was really just living paycheck to paycheck on the fringe. So my dad was sick for a few years, so she also had medical bills to deal with after his death. So I think in that shuffle, then with refinancing the mortgage and just not knowing what was coming in 2008, it was really the beginning of the end. And the way it all played out was in 2017, we took my mom to Financial Peace University, actually, because I knew my mom was on the fringe. I could tell. But I just didn't know how serious it was. And I would ask, and I probably made every mistake in the book in how I tried to approach it because we were paying off our debt, my husband and I, and we were being really successful with finances. And so I really wanted my mom to be successful too. I was maybe just a little too overzealous, but we took her to Financial Peace University and she still would not open up. And then a few months after that ended, she told us that she was being foreclosed on and had to leave her house in two months. And that was a big shocker for everything that we had just been through. And it all happened all at once then. And Cameron, your father died at 61, I believe, preceding your mother's Alzheimer's. Was there a foreshadowing there for you that hmm, maybe there's some financial issues that I might have to address as time goes on? You know, the last thing I was thinking about at that time was my parents' finances, which I think it's the case for most people. We're so busy just trying to get a handle on our own finances. We're not thinking about our parents. And a lot of us think that our parents have their financial acts together. And I learned firsthand that's not always the case. My parents were divorced and my father was in a second marriage. He was an attorney and he died without a will. Fortunately, it didn't end up as bad as it could have. In a situation like this, when there is a second marriage and there is no will, it was certainly awkward. It it certainly would have been a lot easier if my dad had put his wishes in writing because no one knew what he wanted. And I actually think that there wasn't much to leave behind, even though he was an attorney and he did well as an attorney. I think there might have been, you know, maybe more debt than assets there. I honestly don't really know. He did have a life insurance policy still, and my sister and I were beneficiaries. You know, we did help pay for his funeral services. And my stepmother, she was employed. She was doing fine financially. My mother was always frugal, was always, you know, watching how she spent money. And even though we didn't talk about money, I could see from her actions growing up that she kept a close eye on her money. She was always looking for ways to save money. She wasn't a big spender. I knew she had inherited money from her parents. And to this day, I am so grateful that she didn't blow that inheritance because that is what is paying for her long-term care. But I did have a conversation with her when I moved from Washington, D.C. back to my home state of Kentucky. And this was before her Alzheimer's diagnosis. I talked to her about long-term care insurance and that she should look into it to pay for care if she ever needed it. Unfortunately, she could not get coverage because she had a another pre-existing health condition. And I should have had a conversation with her then. I should have sat down with her and said, okay, mom, you, you can't get long-term care coverage 
let's figure out how you would pay for this care if you ever needed it. But I didn't. It just, it didn't even cross my mind. I was a financial journalist then, but it just wasn't something I was thinking about until she started showing signs of memory loss. I had to step in and start helping her out, get her to meet with an attorney, update those documents. But it's just understandable that people don't have these conversations because it's not something that's top of our minds. And Doug, long-term care insurance uh, played a role in your father's caregiving also. Is that correct? He did have a long-term care insurance policy, and it was one of those 1990s policies that today would bankrupt the average insurance company. I think the policy paid out uh, something like 28 times the amount of premiums he paid in. What was even more apparent to me was that the insurance company did not want to pay and was going to make life as difficult as possible, even to the point where if nobody had been watching, they would have shorted him on the benefits payout. And only when the company was challenged on their math and their spreadsheet did they cough up the uh, final payment. I found it was extraordinarily stressful as a caregiver, even just taking care of dad's finances to have to deal with the insurance company and the monthly routine. And that led to a, a change in our estate planning as parents for our daughter, mm. uh, for when inevitably someday we're probably going to be disabled too. And so that factored quite a bit into our estate planning. Steve, I saw you shake your head as Doug was talking about the difficulties of long-term care insurance, that having the policy was not the end of the story, but you actually had to push them and be very on top of it to get them to to pay the benefit. Did, did that ring true with what you've seen and heard? Well, yeah. A couple of comments here about long-term care. One is, you know, the market continues to change for that product. The pricing has changed dramatically. Insurance companies, they're definitely kind of looking at what's happening with longevity and morbidity and, and that's affecting the products they offer and the premiums they charge. So things people need to be aware of about one Long-term care insurance can sometimes be subjective, where you have to qualify based on these things called ADLs, activities of daily living. So if you can perform like two of them, like feeding yourself and cleaning yourself or some number of them, then you may not qualify for getting the payout. And then, then it's a subjective thing of proving that you can actually get the benefit. And also you need to understand you know, how changeable is the premium that I'm paying? Can this thing be withdrawn in the future? It can be complicated. And our view of insurance should be simple, right? And if it gets complicated, then you want to find another provider. There are other ways to do this, right? You can buy like an annuity that has a guaranteed payout. You can try to use social security claiming strategies to do this stuff. There's different ways you can hedge this yourself. And you should consider those or talk to a financial professional who's a fiduciary when you're considering this stuff because most people aren't like the folks that are sitting around this podcast that think about this, you know, 24-7. Yeah. When we were thinking about doing long-term care insurance or something like that for my mom, because she's still in good health, we saw the prices of it and we had to decide, are we going to subsidize one of these policies for my mom or are we going to fund our son's 529? Because we literally can't afford to do both. We just don't have enough money. Cameron, that's an interesting question. We look at the hierarchy of our own financial needs and we start thinking about our children, we think of our own retirement, and then we somehow have to factor in our parents' possible financial needs. How do you manage that hierarchy? How do you decide what comes first, your children's 529 versus your parents' need for long-term care? Your finances have to take priority. And that means your retirement savings come even before your kids' college education, before your parents. Now, that said, if you are part of a culture where you're the country you're from, you know, your race, your religion, where it is expected that the children will care for the parents, and you've known this, you know, since the day you were born practically, that you are going to be counted on to help care for your parents, that needs to be factored into your budget. You can't just simply assume that you're going to somehow figure it out and make it all work out. You need to start planning now so that in addition to saving for your retirement, maybe you're setting aside a little bit of money to help care for your parents. And that might mean cutting out other things. That has to be a line item in your budget too, just like your retirement savings, just like paying for gas and groceries, if that is expected of you. Now, if it's not expected of you and suddenly your parents are springing it on you that, oh my goodness, you've been my long-term care plan all along because of course family helps family and they've been reluctant to tell you this and suddenly they're asking you for help. I really do think that you have the right to tell your parents, 
My finances are a priority. I cannot jeopardize my finances. And I have children, if you have them, that I need to support. And I don't want to put them in the position. I would love to be able to help you out, but I'm not in a position to be able to do so financially. Let's look into what resources are available out there to help you, such as Medicaid. We're also facing, due to longevity, kind of a a new environment for many people. So I, I don't know about you guys, but I now know more and more people in my life that are approaching 100 years old. Like it's not uncommon for me to kind of bump into people that are like, they know someone or I know someone who's 100 or getting there. And so now we're starting to see families that will have four generations alive at the same time. So I do think that you have to start thinking intergenerationally. I mean, you want to take care of yourself first. That's kind of the baseline rule of thumb. But now like, you know, yeah, your parents are going to be older. Do you want them to potentially live on the street? No, right? And your kids, they're coming up, they're going to college, all this stuff. So like my grandmother lived till 94 years old. You know, my mom is 78 years old right now. She's still pretty healthy. Could I see her hitting 100 given what's happened with healthcare? For sure, right? And that's 22 more years. My youngest kid is 10. He'd be 32 years old, right? And I have kids that are eight years older that, you know, it's highly likely they're going to have children. So how this all hangs together, it gets complicated. And so I I do think the world is going to go to a place where you have to think intergenerationally you do have to kind of get your cards on the table and be able to talk with your family about this money stuff because the brave new world out there. That's what, that was my point. Doug, talk a little bit about this line item that we should be putting in our budgets for our family members. Your father turns out had enough money, but that didn't stop you from having to spend money in order to help be his caregiver. Talk about how much you had to spend and now in retrospect, how much you would have put aside for such things. Well, it's one of the uses of an emergency fund that you never really think of. But at one point, my father was consuming uh, up to $25,000 of our personal assets. Now, we could look down the road and realize that once we gain control of his finances, that that money would be reimbursed. But that might not always be the case for the average family. If you've got to pay a couple of months of premiums of long-term care insurance before they get the policy claim approved, if you have to pay a couple of months of care in a care facility, money adds up fast. And, and even the first time through with the insurance company, when they disapprove the claim, it turns out that even if you're an early stage Alzheimer's, you can still pass a mini mental state exam. And my father could do that for many years. And so that's another additional exam, almost $4,000 for a neuropsychologist to show that although he is hypothetically mentally competent, he can't manage to live independently. So all those things pile up at once, and there's an extraordinary amount of caregiver stress along with the financial pressure. And it had never occurred to my father that he needed to plan beyond the long-term care insurance policy. It was clear in retrospect, he thought, well, I've got long-term care insurance. Uh, I'm taken care of. I have enough money. Everything should be fine without ever considering who was going to handle his finances for him. And the irony in our family of this is that my grandfather, his father, did exactly the same thing to him 25 years earlier with several years of dementia. And by the time my father figured out what was going on, there was the fabled apartment with a hoarder. There were years of unopened dividend checks and payments. There were bills that had gone delinquent, income tax forms that had gone delinquent for five years. So we had always, my brother and I assumed that dad wasn't going to let that happen to us. And that's what dad told us for 20 years until it did. And That's a big plan, not just financially, but emotionally having somebody there that understands what the plan is going to be to take care of you when you're not able to take care of your finances. I've probably gone to the other end of the bell curve and making sure that our daughter understands everything involved with our finances and she's got access to the funds as soon as she thinks she needs to start spending money for our care. And you actually had to spend, what did I read, $14,000 or something like that on getting legal conservatorship, correct? I mean, the legal fees you had to pay to take over your father's finances were, I imagine, wholly unexpected. Right. If you think that probate is expensive, if you think long-term care insurance is expensive, consider the alternative where you do nothing and you have to file appeals with the probate court for literally several months to get control of those finances. And and there's a lot of other pressure on the family as well. For example, the probate court is the review authority of everything you do financially to take care of your parents. But they also have an incentive to push you aside and have a paid conservator come in and take over. So you never really know whether you're going to be a conservator from one year to the next. And that's a special form of its own kind of stress above and beyond of the stress that other people are dealing with, with taking physical care of their parents and their health and keeping them occupied and interested and keeping them alive, essentially. Uh, And I was only dealing with finances. That was stressful enough. 
a lot of estate planning will address how to take care of the assets after you're dead. It's cynical to say it, but being dead is the easy part. It's planning for your disability and for who's going to take care of you and what tools they're going to have. How can they access the money as soon as they see a problem? That disability planning is, I think, much more important. Jen, I see your situation as slightly different from Doug's and Cameron's. Your family member uh, didn't have the financial means. It seemed that their family members did. Did that create a different sort of stress? So you weren't dealing with medical illness per se. You were dealing with a lack of funds. Our issues aren't immediate. We're not dealing with them right now, but we have them hanging over our heads uh, because we know eventually it may not be dementia, but it may be something else. And my mom assumes that she's just going to work as long as she can and then live off of social security for the rest of her life like her mother and her grandmother did before her. And we know that that is probably not the case. And so we have this burden hanging over our heads. How do we deal with it? Because she's not dealing with it. And it was only after talking to Cameron, actually, that we got the power of attorney signed for her so that whenever that day does come, that's one less thing we have to stress about. Steve, let's talk a little bit about caregiver burden. I pulled some numbers off the new retirement website, and I'm going to quote them. 40 million Americans are serving as caregivers to family or friends, and 68% also contribute an average of $7,000 a year to recipients' expenses. That sounds pretty bad. I mean, I think caregiving is this kind of huge, untalked about load on families that's out there. In this group, you know, there's a lot of learning that's happened just by looking at their families and, and what's happened in their families. And I think for most people, you need to look at this because outside of like the immediate cost of what's happening, caring for them, but like, when did it happen? Even though it's a little bit morbid, right? If your parents are passing away younger or they're getting dementia or whatever, you need to look at that for yourself because that could happen to you. That could change your arc. And so I think for me, I'm like, there's longevity, knock on wood, right? Famous last words in our family. That creates one set of problems, right? Hey, how do we fund these lives for 20 or 30 years? Or if people are getting dementia and passing away earlier, you know, there's, there's other sets of problems that you're going to run into. But it's good to look at that for signals. And then I think what happens is caregiving falls on the family. And typically it falls on the females, like very often the oldest daughter. It's like, okay, hey, guess what? Now you're in charge, like with no notice of taking care of this problem for an indefinite amount of time. And it's going to cost a fortune. And if your parents don't have enough money, you're going to pay for it, right? And it can be this huge amount of cash that's just like going out the door every day. And like per Doug, it's super complicated because you're arguing with insurance companies, you're arguing with the court, right? If it's not all set up properly and you don't have full control of their assets or visibility into it and who knows what. So it is a big issue. It pays to kind of look around and think about this in advance, you know, because no matter what, we're all getting older, right? And we're all going to get sicker and we're all going to die and your parents are all going to die, right? No one likes to talk about it. So the world's biggest avoidance problem, right? Money and like dying and being sick. But, you know, that's why you kind of do have to pay attention here. Yes, uh, it's a big load and it's expensive. And let's talk a little bit also just about kind of the non-economic caregiver stresses. I mean, Cameron, you're part of that sandwich generation, right? So you have younger kids, or at least when your mom was first diagnosed, you did. If you hadn't got the caregiving situation set up right, would you have had to leave working full time or, or what would you Certainly. have had to do? I wouldn't have been able to work. I'm going to throw out a couple of statistics really quick and explain and then kind of go into some details on my situation because your listeners might be thinking, oh, you know, hey, he just picked some people who got bad luck of the draw. But I will tell you that we're not unique here. We, our stories are not unique. More than half of adults who are age 65 will need long-term care at some point. The average length of long-term care that is needed, and long-term care is can be care in your home, assisted living, a nursing home. It's three years. That's average. Average. My mother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's at the age of 65. Relatively young. I was 35. I had two kids at the time. I now have three. And, and one of them was actually still in diapers at the time. She has been in assisted living for six years now. We pay $4,500 a month for assisted living. That's actually about average. And if you're in a nursing home, it's going to cost twice as much. And I live in Kentucky. My mother's in Kentucky. So the cost of living is low here. If you are, actually, she was in Nashville, Tennessee for a while because there wasn't a facility here. We were paying 6000 a month. So the cost can be a lot higher. So don't think that 
I'm unusual, Doug's unusual, there is a very good chance that one or both of your parents will need long-term care at some point if they live long enough. And it is very expensive. And because most people do not have long-term care insurance or even enough retirement savings to pay for long-term care, they rely on family members. Medicare does not pay for long-term care. Fortunately, my mother, even though she could not get long-term care insurance, she had the assets available to pay for care, but I had to be very strategic to make sure those assets were going to last. First step, she was still in her home, hired someone to drive her around and keep an eye on her. Then she lived with me for several years, sold her house. That was a pool of money that we could use. And I was having a paid caregiver come in during the day. But every morning I would get up, make sure she ate breakfast, give her her medicine, check in on her during the day, at night, feed her dinner, all the while working. If she did not have the financial means to pay for that care, I would not have been able to work because if someone has dementia, it can be a full-time job. You cannot leave that person unattended. They will wander off. They will set the house on fire. And I know that sounds dramatic, but my mother almost did. She left a tea kettle on the stove and the house almost burned down. And then when it got to the point where I knew she needed round-the-clock care, moved her into assisted living. But I couldn't have worked full-time and raised my children and cared for my mother all at once. It just would not have been possible. And it was difficult enough having those caregivers there because at the end of every day, I was very stressed, emotionally drained. And it's just very difficult to be in a position where you have to be a parent to that parent. I live in Northern California, which is expensive. And we started researching this and one quote is kind of 4,500 a month. And that's for Something that's a great deal. I think, and you know, many of these places are six, seven, eight thousand dollars. It gets to be a real cost and hurry for your parents. Like the decisions they make, especially around social security, can be huge. So one thing we tell most of our audience is, hey, if you're married, have the higher income earner delay social security till seventy. What that does is, very often that's the male who's going to, you know, predecease the wife, but it maximizes the survivor benefit. And you know what? Later on, if she's 90 and, and you're gone, but she's getting a much higher benefit, it may pay for care. It may subsidize this or help your, your future generation. Up to until recently, many people were taking Social Security at 62. Now it's starting to push older. But you know, there, there are these big decisions on Social Security, Medicare, the costs, starting costs that you need to be thoughtful about and have your parents be thoughtful about. So it's good to be discussing this with them and having them be, you know, think about it. To put this one last point to further in perspective, MetLife actually did a study in 2011 about caregiving costs, and they estimated the caregiving costs to working caregivers were between $280,000 to $320,000, and that included lost Social Security, pension benefits, and wages. I'd like to take a pause for a moment and recap. In the first half of the show, Cameron, Jen, Doug, and Steve elucidated the complexity of dealing with the financial issues of their parents in the midst of foreclosure, dementia, and general aging. After the break, we'll be back to tackle how to overcome this seemingly insurmountable task. But before we do, I wanted to say thanks to Jouse for supporting What's Up Next. Have you ever thought about starting your own business? Perhaps you wanted to begin a side hustle or passion project, but weren't sure where to begin. Ensuring a steady income will always be one of the first things you think of, and could be the reason why you don't eventually take the leap in the first place. Jouse is the nation's only all-inclusive banking platform for the self-employed. Business banking can feel complicated, but Jouse makes it easy. PayArmor, Jouse invoice payment guarantee product, supports the 71% of the gig economy workforce that experiences non-payment. You can sign up for Jouse for free at try.joust.com backslash WUN and enter the promo code WUN and get $100 in credits. That's try.joust.com slash WUN. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right. We've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave and two minutes later we'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing, and there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including calorie smart, keto, protein plus, or vegan and veggie. 
Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week. These are chef-prepared meals, and let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave, and two minutes later, you have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. I'd like to spend the rest of the podcast transitioning more to talking about what possible solutions are so that we can be more prepared for this type of situation. The first solution, as everybody's mentioned some cost figures, and uh, my father in Denver was paying between $7,500 a month to $8,000 a month for full care facility, including memory care. So those numbers are quite standard. You know, I had a spreadsheet that projected his assets out considerably longer than what turned out to be his lifespan, fortunately for the financial aspect of it. But in that planning was the fact that if you delay Social Security, as Steve said, to age 70, and you have any other kind of income at all from investments or other assets, when you get to the point that you can't afford that care facility anymore, and the care facility is going to have to file a Medicaid application, your Social Security and any other income streams you have is a big factor in that care facility agreeing to continue to kick you on. They cannot technically kick you out for not having money. However, if behavioral problems are surfacing or your parent isn't happy where they're at, we had to deal with that situation several times. So one of the biggest resources that I was able to luck into, I wouldn't have appreciated this without the experience, is geriatric care managers. And a geriatric care manager is somebody who is very familiar with what's available in your community. At one point, I was paying bills to three different geriatric care managers in three different cities in two different time zones just to make sure we knew where to take dad after he got out of the hospital, where the best places were, having somebody on the ground to check those facilities out, somebody who knew their record with inspections for Medicare and Medicaid, and who knew what community resources were available. Even if you're supporting a parent who doesn't have the financial assets to support themselves, even if they're perfectly competent to go about their daily routine, tying in with that geriatric care manager can help you figure out what's available, make sure that they don't get their utilities shut off, that they can still get access to food and transportation. And a parent doesn't want to have that conversation with a geriatric care manager necessarily on their own. But if you can go over and say, Dad, I found some resources, you need to take a look at these, that can get the conversation started. And so the geriatric care managers for me were standing by both from a care perspective uh, of taking care of my dad and as well as uh, helping with finances. If I had something I wanted to try out with my father's finances, I knew I could talk to a geriatric care manager and not just get their sense of whether it was something that was done where my dad was, but also maybe get a referral to either a lawyer or to a certified financial planner or somebody else. And these geriatric care managers see it all the time as an emergency. They are called in when it's an absolute crisis. And so when somebody contacts them early on in a process and says, I see that this situation is coming up, they are so grateful to just be able to get some contact data and open a file for you. There's not even any really fee for that first visit and for getting that paperwork ready in case the day comes. So geriatric care managers, big help. I would say as far as the financial aspect of this and what you can do to prepare, first thing you need to do is get your parents to meet with an attorney to make sure they have those legal documents in place. Not just the will, but the power of attorney, which lets you name someone to make financial decisions for you if you can't. And the advanced healthcare directive also called a living will. Because Doug's father had not named him power of attorney, that's why he had to go through the court process. You had to be mentally competent to sign these documents. I got my mom in soon enough to meet with an attorney. She named me and my sister power of attorney. She named us her healthcare power of attorneys. We didn't have to go through the court system. Yes, she spent some money up front to have these documents drafted, but it saved me a ton of money of having to go through the court process to become her conservator. I'm simply her power of attorney. I take the document. I show it to the bank. The bank is willing to talk to me and let me manage her accounts for her. And the advanced healthcare directive is so important too, because not only does it let you name someone to make 
healthcare decisions for you, but it spells out what sort of end of life medical treatment you do or do not want. And if you have a parent who has dementia and at that point can no longer say, yes, keep me on life support, you want to know beforehand whether they want to be kept on life support or not, because again, that cost is going to fall on you. You're going to perhaps end up having to pay to keep them on life support or drain all the assets they have. And it's just, it's something that you don't need to go through if that stuff is already put in place. So get your parent to meet with an attorney. If they can't afford an attorney, you know, there's legal aid out there for lower income people. There are low and no cost documents available online. Meeting with an attorney is always better. Next step, ask them to look into long-term care insurance. If they're in their 50s or 60s, they are still and in good health. They can still qualify for a decent rate. Typically, policies on average will cover about three years worth of care, which, hey, three years worth of care is better than no years of care. Even if you do have to jump through some hoops to get them to pay, that is a source of money. If they don't want to go with long-term care insurance, their life insurance policies with a long-term care benefit so that even if they don't need the money for long-term care, they have beneficiaries who will get the death benefit when they die. Annuities, if worse comes to worse, if they have enough equity in their house or they own it outright, there is that reverse mortgage option and there's Medicaid. If you have very limited assets, very limited income, Medicaid does pay for long-term care in your home and in a nursing home. It will not pay for, typically will not pay for assisted living memory care, but it will pay for care in an approved nursing facility. So it's an option and you can, you know, reach out to your local Medicaid office and see if your parents will qualify. They've paid into the system. They might as well get money out of it if they need it. The benefit of talking to your parents while they are young and healthy is that you have more options. If you wait until there's that emergency, your options are so limited and you might not have any. Steve, talk a little bit about that reverse mortgage option. It's not one you hear people talk about often, but I've seen it here and there on the new retirement website. Is that something people are doing? Yeah, some people are doing it. Historically, it's been more of a needs-based solution for folks. So they kind of exhaust their other assets and then they're like, okay, I'm basically down to my net worth is now tied up in my house. And so their options are either rent out part of the house, downsize, and move. Very often, they can't necessarily get a HELOC or, or refinance their mortgage simply because they don't have the income. So reverse is an option. The product has gotten more efficient and more transparent, which is good, but it's still kind of a niche solution out there. I think it can be good if used wisely, and people should consider it, and, and they should talk to a financial planner about it. it. It could be good for people to kind of stress test what happens. Like this just occurred to me, like, okay, if my parents died tomorrow, what would I do and what documents would I have on hand, right? And very often, you probably won't have the right stuff or a complete set of stuff. And then, then you're kind of facing some challenges. I think, you know, from our perspective, where we think about solutions is one, we focus on planning, right? And building a plan. That forces a couple things. It makes people get organized, right? So just getting you or your parents to kind of document what they have and where it is, what insurance, what money, what, you know, how, what's happening with the house, all that stuff is a great first step. And then talking about it and then starting to think through some of the different scenarios like, okay, how do we want to manage retirement, but also if things, if things go sideways, right? What's our plan A, B, and C? You know, where am I going to live? How am I going to claim social security? How will I use home equity? Should I annuitize? Should I get a deferred annuity kind of longevity insurance, which can be an interesting strategy. It's kind of like claiming social security late, basically buy an annuity that kicks in at 85 when you're not supposed to be alive. So it's cheap, super cheap. But hey, if you're still going strong, then bang, you kind of set a hard end date for your planning window. There's lots of things people can do, but it really starts with education. For many people, they don't know this stuff and they need to kind of sp spend some time thinking about it, learning about it and talking to families. A lot of people try to wait until they're older, their kids are older, they can start thinking about the stuff for their parents. But I was 27 when my mom lost her house and we had to start thinking, how is she going to survive? Because she's not going to have that home equity to support her. And Cameron was 35. I think people need to start thinking about this stuff and stress testing this stuff a lot sooner than they may have assumed. And Jen, it seems that we've talked this whole time about how to prepare our parents for this time in their lives, but we also have to work on preparing ourselves. You wrote a blog about some basic solutions 
about how to help yourself as a caregiver. You ticked off kind of a framework, I would say, for how we have to look at things as the caregiver. And you said you have to start talking, establish boundaries, give some grace, and break the cycle. So it sounds to me like we have to protect not just our parents, but also protect ourselves. Ultimately, when we were deciding whether to subsidize long-term care or to fund our child's college, we chose our child's college fund. That was what fits in our budget, and that's what we're working on. That is a boundary we set. And I've definitely gotten better talking with my mom about finances. I've had to learn how she responds, and she's still very secretive. I still don't know a lot about what's going on with her financially. I know she she lives in an apartment and she can afford that and she's working and she plans to keep working as long as possible. I still have that stress hanging over me of like, I don't know how long as long as possible is, but we keep being open and having a lot of grace for her and not placing judgment because I think part of that secrecy not only comes from people just assume they don't talk about finances, but she sees us doing so well with our finances that she's a little embarrassed and that causes a little more of secrecy. Um, So we've had to just be really humble and have a lot of grace when talking to her. And that's kind of also protected us in the process. Doug, I want to use Jen's words and talk about breaking the cycle. You mentioned that your grandfather put your father through the same thing, and then your father put you through it. What are you doing to break the cycle with your children? Well, first thing we did was spend most of the year, and I mean that literally most of 2019, uh, my spouse and I having those intense conversations where you talk about death is fairly straightforward, but what if we end up in a situation of disability? And it turned out that we both had misconceptions about what kind of estate planning we wanted to do and what that planning would look like. We have the plan now to break the cycle, and I, I write about that on my blog. But essentially, the plan is that all the other paperwork that Cameron has already mentioned that you have to have, the powers of attorney, the living will, the directive, and of course, a regular legal will. And we want to step further. We feel that our daughter is more relieved at knowing that we have a plan and something that she can do. And so we've set up a durable power of attorney over a separate account. And it's the money that my father left as my inheritance after he passed away. That durable power of attorney uh, with Fidelity is sitting there, not just where she has to go look up a login and a password, it's in her account. She can actually tap that money from her Fidelity account right now. And she could be, as far as I know, in Las Vegas right now having a wonderful party. But it's to her, it's a source of tremendous relief to know that if we do end up having an unfortunate accident on slow travel and we end up in a pair of comas, that she knows where to get assets to pay for the immediate expenses and take care of the crisis and not have to worry about reimbursements or emergency funds. And so just her having access to that money is priceless to make her feel more comfortable. As parents, we're considering taking that to the next step, and we've done most of the steps of letting her manage all our assets. And we're in a niche situation where we can do this. Uh, We're happy with her managing all of our assets because we know she's capable of doing it, of course, but also because if something were to happen with her, we'd be able to understand how that would work and have plans in place for it. Of course, the worst nightmare is what if your kid runs away and donates all that money to a cult? My spouse and I have pension income and we would have social security income to be able to rebuild our finances if that happened. But in the meantime, I have broken a cycle. My daughter feels tremendously relieved knowing that that's all available to her when she needs it. (laughs) Ironically, my son-in-law is even more relieved that he's not going to have to take care of his parents-in-law. So that was an unattended side effect, a nice little bonus there on the estate planning. And this is particularly important to them as they're starting their own family now, knowing that they don't have to worry about mom and dad. I think this touches on one of the big somewhat unsolved problems here, which is as you kind of get older and then you have to cede control at some point, whether by choice, you know, in Doug's case, which is pretty rare, Doug, so good for you, or by necessity where, hey, person's no longer mentally competent and there's a whole discussion about that. You definitely at some point are going to give control of your money, if, if you have any, right, to future generations. But I think one thing people have to be really aware of is that unfortunately, for elder abuse and financial abuse, most of it happens, guess where, from inside the family. I have a huge extended family, but we've seen some of this in our family. And, you know, it's surprising. And, and, and people can rationalize stuff all kinds of ways, right? But, you know, I think you have to be aware that this can happen. 
it's almost like what you want with a company where you want to have a board of people that are making a decision versus a single person. So if they're like, hey, I've got a million bucks and guess what? I'm going to give this person over here absolute control over it. Well, then you have a single point of failure versus if you have visibility and say, hey, you know what? Okay, we're actually going to have votes on any big expenditures over a certain amount of money or like at least visibility that is happening. So you're not going to see some $200,000 drawdown that nobody knew about that you've then discover five years later. But I think that this is a big thing for families to discuss and it's definitely a... Uh, it's like a third rail, right? That people will have to deal with at some point. Yeah, that's why it's so important to encourage your parents to have that power of attorney document because it allows them to name someone they trust. They get to make that decision. And I know a lot of people look at power of attorney as giving up power. Why would I want to give someone so much control over my finances? Because if you use that general durable power of attorney, basically what you're saying is I am giving someone access to my finances. Now it's not, there are different types of power of attorney. There's like the springing power of attorney where something has to happen to you. And and that can make it more difficult for someone to step in and be start managing your finances. Attorneys usually say you want the general durable power of attorney, but your parents might say, why would I want to give my kids or anyone that much control? Well, because you get to decide. If you don't, then the good for nothing cousin, nephew, stepson, whatever might weasel his way in and say, I'll, I'll take care of mom. I'll be happy to do it. Before you know it, he's gotten her to like sign everything over to him and then mom has no money. So when you're having these conversations with your parents, you let them know, look, this doesn't mean you're giving up power. This means that you are getting to decide who makes these decisions. Don't you want to decide rather than letting a judge decide for you or someone else stepping up and volunteering to do this? This is the best way to protect your money is to make these decisions while you are competent enough as opposed to letting someone step in. You're so right, Steve. It is such a big problem where people come in and they, they abuse that power. They abuse that trust. Fortunately, there are plenty of people who have been named power of attorney that the parents thought they could trust who turned out to do bad things too. But you're better off naming someone and making that decision while you're competent enough to make that decision and letting your parents know that that is the benefit of doing these things in advance to lower their risk of being taken advantage of. About in our family too, about being able to learn how to manage a large sum of money while you're in your 20s and understanding how that works while we're all still around to talk about it. And you're learning more about your inheritance while you're in your 20s and it has more meaning to you uh, rather than in your 50s when you're busy with life and there's a crisis. So in the US, there's $107 trillion in net worth, right? So 75% of that money, about $80 trillion, is controlled by people over 50. And about 30, depending on what happens here, some people are saying 30 to $40 trillion, right? Which is like twice the size of the US economy, is gonna get passed down to generations. So the amount of money that's on the table and could be flowing, and I grant you this is like, concentrated in the top because of wealth inequality, the top, you know, 20% of the population, but is enormous and it creates all kinds of potential risks and issues for people and, you know, potential bad actors. So you got to pay attention if you're really thinking about passing on huge amounts of money. There's also giant tax implications for folks they need to be thinking about as well. Well, you raise an interesting point there, Steve. We're talking about this question that we start off with was, will your parents complicate your financial future? And listen to this conversation. I think everybody would say, well, yes, it sounds very likely that they will. So what is the one thing that someone should do? I'll give you a chance to give a specific example of what someone should do. A person in my situation, for example, I haven't, my parents and my wife's parents are currently still healthy. They don't need long-term health care. And I've supposedly, I'm financially independent, but I, I can't pay for four people to go to a long-term healthcare for $5,000 a pop per month. What, what should someone in my situation do? I'll start with Cameron. Talk to your parents now while they are healthy. This is the perfect time to have the conversation because they have options. And just because they're healthy now doesn't mean they will always be healthy. My mother was relatively healthy. And the reason that she has lived so long with Alzheimer's is because she is healthy. Aside from the fact that she has this mental decline, she is relatively physically healthy. So talk to your parents tomorrow. <laughs> you know, have that conversation and say, let's sit down and chat and let's come up with a plan for how 
we would pay this. What role you expect me to play? What role you expect my siblings to play as you age? You know, Fidelity did a, a survey and found that a majority of adults, older adults, expect their kids, their adult kids, to play a role in their lives as they, their financial lives, either helping them manage their finances as a caregiver or as executor of their will. A majority. Yeah, only a minority, like a third of those kids actually know that their parents had these expectations for them. And so I say, if your parents are expecting you to be involved in their financial lives as they age, wouldn't you rather know this now than down the road? So you need to talk to your parents now and come up with this plan. And if you're lucky, you'll never need to put that plan in action. But at least you'll have a plan. I mean, that's why you have life insurance. Hopefully, you're not going to need it. Hopefully, you're not going to die within that 20-year term. Hopefully, you're not going to need that auto insurance or that homeowner's insurance. But it's there to provide that protection, that financial protection in case you need it. Put a plug for Cameron's book, too, in that if you don't know how to have that conversation, or more importantly, if your parents don't want to have that conversation, that book has scripts in it to get you started, to facilitate the conversation and get it moving. And the first step is to say, mom, dad, here's the estate planning I've done so that you don't have to worry about taking care of your grandkids and raising your grandkids. And here's other things that we're doing in our family. Could you share a little bit about what you're doing so that we don't have to worry about that like you don't have to worry about your grandkids? Jane, what would you have done differently knowing what we've talked about here, knowing what you know now, what would you have done differently? I would have started with sharing stories. So instead of being so outright and asking my mom what was going on with her finances and and what was there, I would have started sharing stories that I had heard of other people's parents and other families. And like Doug said, what we're doing to prevent them from having to take care of our kids. So the things that we are doing and seeing other people doing, starting the conversation like that. And I'll put another plug for Cameron's book. It has so so much great stuff in it and helped me try to navigate this and helped me to start now putting this into my financial planning. I think for a lot of people, especially people that are pursuing financial independence, they forget to factor this into their budget for early retirement or, or wherever they're going. And so adding that in as a factor may mean we need to work a little extra, a few extra years, or do things a little differently in the budget. But factoring it in now will only benefit us in the future. Steve, we've covered this from a lot of different angles. As we wrap up this conversation, I know this is your, your business. Is there anything that you, we haven't covered that we should have talked about so far? We believe that it does start with one, getting educated, but two, taking the time to build a plan. I mean, that's part of the reason Like we provide a baseline free planning software where you can just punch in your numbers, you can get your situation and look forward in time about what happens. And one of the big things we do is we actually show people that, hey, you know, if you don't have long-term care in place, then we have these big spikes around your expected mortality because there's research from Boston College's Center of Retirement Research that says, hey, guess what? The average person spends half of their retirement healthcare expenses, which could be $200,000 for a family in the last 18 months of life. So everyone's like, what the heck are these giant spikes? We're like, well, guess what? This is what happens to the average person. Most people don't think about it because it's like, you know, they're just not thinking about it. But if you see it out there and you're like, oh, wow, and that destroys my plan. So suddenly I was good until around this time and suddenly I have a giant shortfall. It gets them to kind of see, oh, this is what could happen and then hopefully start the dialogue. You know, I like what Jen was saying. I I do think that how we communicate about this, and also Cameron, right? For, I think some people, especially men, they've got a very like, hey, it's by the numbers and here's, the, here's, here's how it is, right? And you see this within families too. There's like a family banker person. And there's other people that don't hear the message the same way and like sharing it through stories and like what could happen and kind of like the good and the bad, not just the bad, right? But like how this could play out well is, is an important part of communicating this. Well, thank you so much. I think this has given uh, certainly me a food for thought and I think the audience as well. I would like to give each of you a chance to promote where we can find you and let us know what is up next for you and I'll send it right back to Steve. You go to our website, newretirement.com. You can find a thousand articles around kind of retirement topics, including this. We also host a podcast, the New Retirement Podcast. But the main thing that we're doing is working on this online planning solution that is either free or six bucks a month as a, as a membership. And you basically build a plan for yourself and you look forward in time and you can kind of think through what are the big levers that you can pull across 
healthcare, income, social security, home equity, insurance, and all these things and kind of see what happens. And I, I do think it it's making a, a pretty big difference in people's lives. We're definitely hearing it from our users. They haven't seen anything like this. It's not, everyone else is focused on accumulation. We're focused on decumulation. Like how do you spend your money down and make it last for this like indefinite amount of time? But I appreciate the opportunity to be on the show and, and also uh, listen and learn from everyone else here. Yeah, thanks for being on here. We'll turn it over to Cameron. Where can we find you and what is up next for you? You can find out more about me at CameronHuddleston.com. And there are links to my book there, links to my social media. I have a couple of free downloadable resources that you can take advantage of. Everyone likes a freebie, right? Yeah. And uh, what's up next? Let's see, maybe another book. Mm -hmm. We'll see. But right now I am just so focused on getting the word out about this because it's so important to be having these conversations with parents, especially with a large number of baby boomers who are not prepared for living these long lives that we're living now and don't have the retirement savings and don't have a plan for long-term care. It's just so important for people, for families to be having these discussions so that they can be prepared. Well, thank you so much. Uh, Jen, we'll move over to you. Where can we find you and what is up next for you? Well, I am the co-host of the Frugal Friends podcast, uh, and we have a new episode every Friday. And I also write over at modernfrugality.com. What's up next? I'm just going to continue to uh, help people spend and accumulate less so they can use their money for more of what matters most to them. I love that. And Doug, where can we find you and what is up next for you? I write about military personal finance at themilitaryguide.com. And you can also look up that phrase in a search engine or just search for the name Doug Nordman. I'll also point out for people that are curious about financial independence that uh, my spouse and I have been retired for over 17 years. My Facebook profile is totally public, so you can figure out that glamorous life of uh, financial independence and see what we're up to all over the world. The next thing I'm working on, ironically, considering the conversation we just had about uh, taking care of families, my daughter and I have finished writing a book. The working title of the book is Raising Your Financially Savvy Family for Financial Independence for the Next Generation. And the whole point is that you have these conversations as you're raising your kids, you teach them how to manage money in progressively larger amounts, which starts out by having them make a lot of mistakes with that money. But by the time your uh, kids have turned into young adults, they're much more comfortable with the mechanics of financial management, handling money, and they understand the next steps. That's going to be coming out from uh, Choose FI Media in about the next three, four months of spring 2020. And I'll be posting about that on Facebook as we go through the editing process and come out with a, a launch date. This has been the What's Up Next podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, and my co-host, Paul Thompson, we wanted to thank Doug Nordman, Cameron Huddleston, Jen Smith, and Steve Chen. That's a wrap. Nobody wants to watch like one person talk the to the same talking head every time. Right, <laughs> right. But I never, but I never groom myself. Like I've got to, yeah. you know, got to, you know. We have we we have zero expectations of your grooming anyway, Doc. So it's not <laughs> Thanks, a problem. Thanks, Doug. I appreciate that. Yeah. Interested in the uh, background of uh, the room I'm sitting in when I'm talking, <laughs> just watching the sunrise or watching the birds flying around in the hour. What I have to say. So. Yeah. So the last time Doug was on here, we got to witness the sunrise uh, uh, yeah. in the back window. Just it was a little different angle, and we got to see it change as as we were going through the, the episode because it it's was a something kind of a like gray winter day right now. So it's not yeah. that good. I'm I, a gray winter day in, in Hawaii. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, come to Chicago for a little while. We'll, we'll show you. We'll show you a gray winter day. Yeah. Hey, wait a minute. What if everybody was financially independent? The economy would implode. You know, so first, you have to answer those questions. And you said that'll never happen. It's not well, an issue. Yeah. And, these are my customers. Yeah, it won't happen. <laughs> Marge looked over at me and said, "Hey, you got a third book in you here." <laughs> yes, like, you know the ink is still drying on the second book contract, honey. Uh, and so that's that what one, I'm telling you. These these get-togethers are bad for you. The campfires and the Chautauquas. It's, you come out of them with like books. Homework. I, I am just beginning to be. I've tried them all now, and I see the trend, and uh, I got to watch out. <laughs> Uh, I'm just messing around this a little bit. Not not all of us have a sound engineer. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's uh, he's the son of our COO. But- Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? 
Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.